The following podcast is a Dear Media production. This is Being Bumo, a podcast for the modern parent that wants to be the best version of themselves while being the best parents they can be for their kids. We'll be spotlighting parents and experts who are not only inspiring, but also willing to share with us how it really is. Because as we all know, parenting can be equally as rewarding as it is challenging. We're here to make your life easier, a little less stressful, and help you navigate through this complex thing called parenting. I am so excited for our guest today. She is someone who I've been able to get to know these past few months as we've been building out Bumo Brain Virtual School. I personally learned so much from her and the importance of early childhood education. Her name is Kylie Burke. She is a lifelong early childhood educator, mother of two. She is a senior advisor with Promise Ventures and former CEO of Teaching Strategies. She's also a part of our education advisory board here at Bumo Brain Virtual School. She has taught and cared for infants, toddlers, preschoolers, kindergartners in public, private, and Department of Defense programs. She is nationally known as an expert on early childhood education and child development. Kylie holds a fundamental belief that the relationship between a teacher and a child is a foundation for learning in the early childhood classroom. In our conversation, we talk about why early childhood education is so important and so critical and how it can determine a child's future. We also talk about how we can teach our children compassion, kindness, and empathy at a very young age, and also tips and tricks that actually work for parents. We also talk about how young children can get the proper engagement and education that they need during these crazy times at home. With that said, I hope you guys enjoy our conversation. Hi, Kylie. How are you? I'm great. Thanks. How are you doing? I'm doing well. I mean, I think every day is different, but just <laughs> taking it day by day, as you know. Um, yeah. But thank you so much for doing this with me. And I know that you're incredibly busy. And we have a lot of parents on this podcast that are navigating through these challenging times. I know it's going to mean a lot to them of kind of your background, where you come from with childhood education, which is definitely a hot topic right now is school and <laughs> education. <laughs> yes. yes. Okay. So before we dive into the, the meat of this conversation, I always like to start off with a little icebreaker just to get okay. the conversation going. So if you had 25 hours a day and everyone else still had 24 hours, so you have an extra hour, what would you do with that extra time? That's a great question. <laughs> <laughs> I, think there, I think there are a lot of parents who wish they had an extra hour a day. So I'm going to say something that might sound a little, a little selfish, but I would say I would use that hour for some self-care. I try to make time every day to meditate, even if it's just for a few minutes or journal or spend some time, you know, just kind of in reflection. So if I had an extra hour, I think I might, I think I might use it for that. <laughs> I mean, that's a great answer. I would have to say, I, w- I would probably do the same thing as well. Oh, phew. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like, you know, being parents, especially during this time, sometimes we forget to take care of us, right? We're taking care of everyone else. And so a lot of times, including myself, I get burnt out. And so that extra hour is everything. 
Yes, absolutely. And it's funny because we all know the, you know, the saying that you can't take care of anyone else unless you take care of yourself. It's the put your oxygen mask on first, Uh, but it's hard. It's hard as a parent. Absolutely. Okay. So let's dive into it. I'm going to be asking a lot of questions selfishly for myself because I have a lot of questions. Um, and just to clarify, for those of you that don't know, Kylie is also sits on the board as our one of our advisors for Bumo Brain, and she is has been incredibly helpful with us navigating during this time, and especially with the growth of Bumo. So I just wanted to put it out there just in case anyone has questions, but she knows her stuff in education, and that's why <laughs> we knew we needed someone like her on our team. So with that said, how did you personally get into education? And then let's start off there because now you're the CEO, okay. but I want to know how you got into actual education. Sure. So this, this is a little bit of a, a, a longer story, but uh, when I was nine years old, my mother died and she had been sick for several years before she passed. And during that time, my father spent a lot of his time at the hospital and my brother and I were frequently just left alone. It was back in the day when they would refer to kids like us as latchkey kids, like we'd come home from school by ourselves. And on the weekends, we'd float among relatives and friends' houses. And so for me, my early childhood teachers were really my only constant. Um, They were the women who would talk to me and ask me questions and um, and do things like brush my hair. I'm part Hawaiian. I have this long, dark hair, always have. And when I was little, it was so long I could sit on it. My daughter calls it my Moana hair, period. <laughs> <laughs> but it was so long that my little arms couldn't reach the middle. So I would get these really like gnarly knots in my hair. And my father was ill-equipped to handle it. And so my teachers would brush my hair. Like before and after school, I'd go and sit with them. And they'd brush my hair and talk to me and make me feel loved, uh, make me feel supported and nurtured. They'd hug me. They were the people in my life who I can remember telling me that I was smart, that I could do anything I wanted to, that I was strong. And my brother just didn't have that. He was a little older than me. So relationships with teachers were different. Um, And maybe also because, you know, he, he was a boy. So he went through those really difficult years without that warm, nurturing embrace of a consistent and supportive adult relationship. We'd always been different people, but we were more alike than not when we were little. And he was absolutely my closest friend, my favorite playmate. But we came out on the other side of my mother's death, completely different people, and would go on to take these extraordinarily different paths in life. I did well in school. I went to college. I became a teacher, a school administrator, a mother, a CEO. He struggled to graduate high school. He struggled then to keep a job. He lied to everyone he knew, became a master manipulator and a drug addict, a father who took his children in and out of homelessness. And three years ago, he, he died of a drug overdose. As I grew up and I could reflect on our childhood with some adult perspective. And certainly as I studied human development and the impact of trauma and adverse childhood experiences or ACEs as they're commonly called, you know, the key differentiator in our experiences was that I had these amazing women, these incredible early education teachers who I believe quite literally saved me. 
And so I knew from a very early age that I wanted to be one of those people. And as I worked with young children and learned more about the critical importance of the early childhood years, I knew honestly just what a blessing it was to have had the experiences with those women that I did when I did. That's why I'm in the field. That's why I will continue to spend my days devoted to high quality early childhood care and education. I know it's a little long winded. (laughs) No, that story really just you know, hit and inspired me. I mean, it must have been a such a challenging time for you, but it's so inspiring to hear how you took something that was so heartbreaking and knew what your calling was through that. Um, and that shows you beyond just like it being a job for you, you pour your heart into it because you know yeah. the outcome of it, right? You could change someone's yeah. life with early childhood yeah. education. Wow, thank you. I, didn't, I, I had no idea. Like I, <laughs> I was going to say, I've, I, I don't I know think you for, told you that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we're always yeah. talking business and we talk, but <laughs> I felt like I've just learned so much about you within the last five minutes together. <laughs> um, and then how did you become the CEO of Teaching Strategies? Because, you know, for me, when I think of educators, you know, I feel like they are really focused on just like one thing, which is great, right? Focusing on education and bettering the strengths of kids. But now you're in the role of a CEO and you have been for a while now. How did that come about? And how is that different than just being a teacher? Yeah, so I just, I loved being a teacher. Um, I spent some time as a resource and referral counselor, helping parents with their child development challenges that they were having. I was an administrator for a while. And then when I was making a a big move back actually from Hawaii to the mainland, I knew teaching strategies that they'd, it was a company that had been around for a while in the field. And I reached out to the then founder and CEO about some other job opportunities I had. And she said, you know, forget about it. You got to come work for, for us. And that's, that at the time, the business was only 13 employees. And I joined to write curriculum and write teacher instructional materials. I really saw it as an extension of teaching rather than a departure from being a teacher. I felt like, oh, this is a way that I can reach even more children and more families. And as the company grew, I actually transitioned out of the the CEO seat recently, and I'm now Mm -hmm. um, the vice chair of our board. The company at the time when I left was hovering around 300 people. So the company really saw a a lot of tremendous growth in in those years that I was there, Um, just slowly working my, my way up to take over that that CEO seat. And when I was running the business, again, just really saw it as an extension, this opportunity to say, okay, rather than than the 24 children in my classroom, now I'm at the helm of something reaching 3 million children, 4 million Mm -hmm. children. Um, And having that impact uh, really meant a great deal to me and my personal mission, which obviously now, now you know. Incredible. And for those uh, that don't know what teaching strategies is, can you give us oh, kind sure. of like the, the <laughs> sure. short pitch of what teaching strategy is? Sure, sure. So teaching strategies is a company in early childhood 
that provides uh, resources and solutions and services for teachers, caregivers, administrators, and families. So early childhood curriculum, assessment, family connection support materials, um, materials to support your children's learning at home, but all focused on the early childhood years, which really spans birth through about age eight. Mm, Amazing. And so let's go into kind of now, where we are now in this current (laughs) state of things. Um, These are stressful times for parents. You know, you are a parent yourself. You have, is it two kids? (laughs) I do. Two kids, yes. So (laughs) as you know, you know, it's a very stressful time for parents. Many parents are having to figure out now what to do with their children's education while they're at home. A lot of parents are working from home, so they are having to play double duty, right? And so now going into the fall semester, there are certain places that are not opening um, schools, but there are places that are reopening. And parents are still a little unsure uh, what the next steps are. So not that I'm asking, like, what should they do? Because that's obviously in their own discretion, like, um, and everyone's kind of situation is very different. But what would you say your number one tip would be for parents during this time? That's that's a great question. So if I had to say one thing during this time, because I, I could not agree more with you that this is incredibly stressful. I know in my own household, and I feel like I'm I've got to be one of the more prepared parents. Like this is what I've gone to school for. <laughs> this is what I've spent my whole life doing. Um, and in my household, it's stressful. So I, I know certainly from, from my friends and, and colleagues and just working with the community how stressful it is. I would say actually that my number one tip would be to take each day as a new day. You're going to have bad days. Your children are going to have bad days. <laughs> um, but that each day is, a, is an opportunity to have a great day. Um, and so to let go of whatever whatever happened yesterday and take each day as it comes. And it's really hard for us to do as adults. Mm. It's actually a beautiful lesson that we can learn from our young children. Um, Absolutely. You've noticed in your children, they just, it, they, every day is like this awesome new opportunity. Absolutely. Um, they don't hold grudges. They don't hang on to junk. You know, they, they don't remember arguments and bring it up again, right? Like they just let it all go. Yeah. Every morning they wake up and it's all fresh and new. So to the extent that we can do that as parents, I think that, that that's the, the number one thing. I actually started a new habit of every morning when I say good morning to my kids now, I say, you know, like, good morning, it's going to be an awesome day. And I just say it out loud, like, partly as a reminder to myself, <laughs> but also to just kind of, kind of let them know, like, I'm resetting, you know, it doesn't matter about, you know, the whatever, we had an argument last night about the mess in the garage or whatever. It is. Yeah. You know, today's a new day. I love that. And <laughs> yeah, I have to agree with you. Kids are so adaptable. They're so resilient. And that's one thing that I've learned from my own kids, especially my five-year-old right now, yeah. you know, obviously as everything has been canceled for the summer, yeah. she's not seeing her school friends, she's not seeing her teacher, she's not going to any of her classes and gymnastics. And yeah. I asked her, you know, like, are you sad? And, and she's like, no, I'm happy. Like, I'm happy to be home. And when she told me that this was kind of towards the beginning of quarantine, so maybe like two months in, um, I realized that it's us adults that 
always have these certain expectations of all the things yeah. that we need to check mark off, but kids just want to be with the parents. They just want to spend time yeah. with the parents. So yeah. it's, it's <laughs> it really, so true. It really is so simple when you say it like that. Yeah. And, you know, for parents that are worrying about education, early childhood education, we'll go into the kind of the importance yeah. of early childhood education as a whole in a bit. But for a lot of parents right now that are worried that their kids are going to fall behind because of the lack of schooling or, you know, the system not in place anymore. What is your thoughts on that? And do you have any advice around that? Yeah, um, that that certainly is a, a real concern. And it's a more of a concern for some families than it is for others. I would say, particularly in the early childhood years, you know, there there are so many things that we can do that are pretty simple as parents to ensure that our children are still learning and growing. And that's actually really good. Um, It puts parents with young children at a bit of an advantage from parents who have, you know, a high schooler trying to take chem two, which Mm. I know I couldn't help with. (laughs) it's more challenging because the younger your child is, the more of your attention they need and, and is required. But the the process of learning and growing, there's just so much naturally that that parents can do. So again, it's it's one of those situations where I'd say to the extent that you can just give yourself a little bit of a break um, and not put so much pressure on yourself, I, I think that's a that's a concern you could let go of a little bit. <laughs> and I'm gonna have to plug in um Fumo Brain here because, you know, that's why we built Fumo Brain, as you know, you know, just to really help parents during these times and virtual learning. So my question is to you, how effective and beneficial can virtual learning be for kids? Yeah, it can be great or it can be terrible. Mm -hmm. Um, So particularly for young children, the social component is so important feeling like you have a connection to a person. The the most critical piece of early childhood development and learning is relationships with others. So relationships with the caregiver, with the teacher, with the parent. Um, Those relationships are so important and relationships with other children. So when I think about BUMO and the bringing together of small groups of children um, with an actual interface with a human, <laughs> mm, yes. you know, um, you know, with a teacher, that is a rich learning opportunity for young children. Having children participate in passive technology use is great and has a purpose um, and certainly is super useful when you're a working parent and you need a block of time and your child's, you know, you need your child to be occupied with something that has some purpose. But when we think about real early childhood education, it does require that, that social connection and a connection to tactile, hands-on, actual doing something, learning. Um, And a lot of times what you get from a digital experience is just very passive. Mm -hmm. Um, It's the the only tactile experience is the child may be touching the tablet and there's no social interaction as opposed to having a conversation with someone on a screen, which our children are very comfortable with and understand that completely as a social experience. And then being directed to go do something in your physical environment 
that's a rich learning experience. Yes. So I think there's there's a, a really good place for that, not just now, but but in the future too, as yeah. an option for families. I mean, absolutely. We, you know, when I saw my daughter in her traditional school virtual learning class, you know, they're figuring it out. And, you know, this is not to put shame to any school. No one knew that we were going to be yes. in this situation. No <laughs> one. So to yes. be forced all of a sudden have a classroom setting virtually for most teachers and schools, it's not great, right? And all of a oh, sudden so you're hard. You're putting like, you know, 15, 20, 30 kids in one classroom. So that was actually my daughter's first experience mm. in a virtual classroom. And honestly, I had to um, backpedal from there because she was so nervous because she's mm. never, I, I forgot for a minute that my daughter has never sat in front of a laptop, first of all, and she's yes. never had to interact with someone on a laptop. So I just assumed that she knew that, right? So I put her in yeah. front of, I think um, it was, early in March and she got so scared and so nervous. And that's when I was like, okay, let's kind of like reintroduce this to her. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And that's when um, we put her in the Bumo brain class, which was a much smaller setting. It's like three to five people in a classroom and it was so much more intimate. It took her Mm. a while, maybe about two times to get used to. But now I'm seeing her mm. learn and grow and yeah. she has this relationship with her teacher. So yes, yeah, <laughs> I think I have yeah. to agree with you. Relationship and the social element is so important. Yeah. Well, the other piece of that is, like you said, schools weren't prepared for this. They so the curriculum was not designed to be taught through Zoom. The technology itself was new for teachers and teachers were unfamiliar with it. Right. right. So I, I think, I mean, that's also a difference with, with Bumo in that everything has been designed with kind of like the, the virtual learning environment in mind. Mm-hmm. Um, I think for some of our, our older students, schools have done a lot of planning for that this summer. And, mm-hmm. you know, for those who are starting school online in the fall, I think it will look different in most mm-hmm. places for families. Schools will be a little bit more prepared, but you're absolutely right. Like, Nobody was expecting it. And so you end up with this curriculum that was not meant to be delivered virtually. Teachers who are not comfortable with technology, <laughs> these large group sizes that are inappropriate yeah. um, for, for an online learning environment. So yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, that that's, is a big difference. Now let's go into um, early childhood education as a whole. You know, when I first chatted with you, you brought up some statistics that really blew my mind. And that's when I knew that, you know, what we were doing was something so incredible because early Mm -hmm. child education is something that a lot of parents don't realize that they actually need. Um, You know, people are like, okay, well, let's think about as they get older, but why do you focus so much on early child education and why is it so critical? Yeah, that's, that's a good question. I mean, we all know by now and have read and and heard enough in the media about brain development in the first five years, right? Our experiences, what we are exposed to and what we're not exposed to shape all future learning. It shapes how we have relationships with others, how we interact with our world, how we are as learners. So if in those first five years, those experiences aren't good ones, 
and children don't have high quality early care and education, whether that's with a parent, um, whether that's with a, a high quality preschool, if they don't have those high quality experiences in the first five years, you end up with these terrible outcomes. They're 25% more likely to drop out of school, 40% more likely to be a teen parent, 50% more likely to be placed in special education, 70% more likely to be arrested for a violent crime. You know, and I'm not saying that to like freak out all the parents, <laughs> but that that's just the truth. Now, you know, most of our children are going to have pretty good early childhood experiences, even if you know, even if we we don't do anything else except love them. But if you have high quality early care and education experiences, you build this really solid foundation for all future learning. And if you get past the early childhood years, it is harder to go back and remediate and try to make up for that time than it is to just build it from the beginning. Does that make sense? Yeah. I mean, it's so true. And those statistics are scary, but I think it's really important for parents to know and be well equipped in the beginning. And so what would you say, now that parents know this information, at what age and how can parents actually start encouraging their kids to learn at such an early age? And it doesn't have to be difficult, right? It could be something as simple as, can you give us some sort of examples around that? Sure, sure. So children start learning at birth. Some people would argue, lots of people actually in early childhood would argue that they start learning in utero, but <laughs> but we won't worry about that. It's too late. They're born. Uh, <laughs> so at starting at birth, uh, children learn. So when we think about the interaction that you have with your newborn baby and you're holding your baby and you make eye contact and you say something sweet like, hi, baby. And the baby looks at you and goes, ah, and the baby coos and you go, I heard you coo. And the baby (laughs) smiles. And then you say something in return, that back and forth exchange, even with a newborn baby, that lays the foundation for all future language and literacy development, that back and forth, give and takes, we call it a serve and return. Um, That language interaction is so critical to children's future learning of vocabulary development, syntax, language, all the building blocks of communication lie there. So like, I can't think of anything more simple than that kind of back and forth engagement. Now that continues. So when we think about every conversation we have with our children is a learning opportunity. So how can we make the most of that, right? We're talking to our kids all day. If we were to pay attention to what we say to our children all day, research shows us that most adults use directives with their children. So the majority of our language as parents is telling children what to do, like pick that up go there, do this. Now we're doing this. Now get mm. in the car, right? It's, it's directive language. And that's great. And that's important. We have to use it. But if we want to encourage learning, we have to make sure that we have language that is open-ended and that engages children in conversation. And so there are two strategies that I think are really easy to use. One is um, what I call responsive and reflective statements. So it's simple as noticing what your child is doing and saying it. So 
I see you stacked all the blocks up into a tower. I see you used purple paint. I see you put your cup in the sink. All you're doing is describing what children are doing. And I know that that sounds really elementary, but I see statements do a couple of things. One, they let your child know that you're paying attention. And sometimes that's all children need in order to avoid what we might think of as negative attention-getting behaviors. Mm. So if, if you use a lot of IC statements, you'll see a lot less of, mommy, mommy, look at me, I'm doing this thing that I shouldn't be because I want your attention. That's um, so true. And, <laughs> and two, um, it opens up conversation. It allows for your child to say something back, to, to talk about why they just did what they did. Uh, it introduces new vocabulary. It's just a really, really good solid strategy that that teachers use um, in early childhood classrooms. The other is to ask open-ended questions. And so again, the responsive and reflective statements or say what you see, that can be used any age. And you can do it with, you can say it to your baby, even though they can't respond, you can say, I see. Um, And then open-ended questions, it's the same thing. You just wonder, you wonder why they did something, how they did that. How did you stack all those blocks up so high? And that encourages conversation. It encourages them to think about why they did something and how they did something. And that's a really critical piece of becoming a problem solver, um, building resiliency, uh, encouraging attention and motivation, those skills that children need to be lifelong learners. So Mm. even if you just do nothing else but those two strategies, uh, you'll be doing so much to support your young children's development and learning. I mean, that sounds simple enough. I mean, I, <laughs> I'm going to start doing that right now, like today. That is so true, though, because, you know, yesterday I was really focused with work and I had a bit more work than the usual. And of course, those are the days when your kids need you the most. And that makes sense because they just simply want your attention. So just just saying what you see them doing yes. could really solve these mommy, mommy moments, right? Exactly. Exactly. Um, So let's talk a little bit about resilience because I know, you know, you talk about that as well um, Mm -hmm. during your teachings. How can we raise truly resilient kids? You know, I have two daughters. My oldest one, Mm -hmm. I feel like she's a little bit more sensitive because we coddled Mm -hmm. her. She was our firstborn. And um, we pretty much everything came in a golden platter, right? With my second, you know, I feel like she's very resilient because we never like had to attend to her while she was crying. Like she figured it out because we were too occupied with the first. (laughs) So asking for myself, how do we raise resilient kids? Yeah. So there, there's something there that's first really core in that you're already doing this. And so the, the work I'm doing now, I'm on, I'm on the board at Teaching Strategies. And then the other piece of work that I'm doing right now is working with children who've experienced trauma um, and adverse childhood experiences. And so for these children, helping them build resilience is critical um, because all of that has been diminished and, and broken down. And the key to being able to do that is a supportive, loving, trusting relationship with an adult. So the number one thing that 
buffers children against the adverse experiences that will happen to them in life, even as they become adults, is whether or not they had a loving, supportive relationship with an adult in their early childhood years. So I have no doubt that both of your daughters are, are going to be very resilient. In the moment as parents, there are certain skills that we can help foster in our children. Um, and one is this idea of kind of stick-to-itiveness, right? When you bump up against a problem, how do you muscle your way through it? When you bump up against a problem and it knocks you down, how do you bounce back up? Mm. <laughs> um, and it, it, my children, uh, similar, but actually in reverse. My son, oh. just for whatever reason, like he could have the worst day and be so upset because something terrible happened. And in five minutes, he's back. And he's smiling and he's happy and (laughs) he's moved on. Uh, And so, and whereas my daughter will dwell in it longer. And when she hits something hard, her response is closer to, uh, I'm going to shift my attention somewhere else. And that's not Mm. for me. That hard thing's not for me. Mm. So as parents, we can encourage our children to problem solve. We can model that for them. We can talk about a time when we encountered a problem and what we did to solve it. We can offer encouragement. We can offer suggestions and ideas to get them to to try. And most importantly, we can acknowledge their success and encourage them when they do persevere, when they do stick with something, when they do bounce back we can notice it. And again, I know this is going to sound ridiculous, but you can use an IC statement. You you can say, oh, I saw you were really struggling with that and you finally got it to fit. Gosh, that must feel so good, right? And encourage that feeling, um, that good feeling that we get from perseverance. And eventually, um, they'll see through your modeling and encouragement that that's, that's a skill they have. That's something they're capable of. That's almost no different than adult if you think about it, because, (laughs) and I think sometimes, (laughs) including myself, we overthink kids, like, how can we teach this to our, our little ones when in fact, it's quite similar to how we learn as adults. Am I right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. And so in our community, we talk a lot about guilt. A lot of our Mm -hmm. parents that follow us on Bumo. Um, Some of them, a lot of them are working parents. And so there's a sense of guilt, whether you are working or not, there's guilt that comes with parenting, right? And so for you personally, like I would love to hear how, if you've ever experienced parenting guilt, and I know that you've been a working woman yourself for a very long time um, and how you were able to kind of overcome it or navigate that. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I. Uh, it's funny you asking that question. I think back to the question you asked me at the start and I said, well, I'm going to be a little selfish. There you go. There's my mom guilt. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, absolutely. And particularly during the years of being an executive at Teaching Strategies um, and as CEO, taking the business through um, a private equity transaction, which is just very labor intensive, really high stakes. And you're, you're trying to do the right thing for your investors, for your employees, and just a very stressful work experience. And I'm, I'm um, a single parent. So it uh, definitely went through <laughs> lots of periods of having, of feeling guilty um, for spending time on work when I wasn't with my children. Um, and 
spending time. I'm also an ultra marathon runner. And so I will go for very long runs. And so like trying to figure out how to not feel guilty about running, which sounds so silly. Like, of course we need to exercise as parents, but I know that that's something like a lot of my mom friends struggle with. They're like, well, I don't want to go to that exercise class because I should be, there's this feeling that we should always be Mm. attending to our children um, when we can. Now, the good news is, and I have the benefit of being exposed to so much research on human development and child development, that there's actually research that shows, (laughs) you know, it's, it's one of those things you can fall back on and be like, oh, at least there's research that shows that children who have working mothers or see their mothers working outside the home at some point in their childhood actually go on to uh, attain greater educational success and are more likely to get an advanced degree. Mm. Uh, <laughs> so, so I can I can look at that research and cut myself a break, but it is challenging. Um, I think the most important thing is, is, again, to go back to what we talked about at the beginning. If you are taking care of yourself, it means you're better able to take care of your family. And that for most of us, and or for a lot of us, that does mean working. That does mean having some outlets for being able to to engage in self-care as well. Yeah. And I think, you know, a lot of parents, whether again they are working or not, it just comes with us as women, right? Like we feel like we always have to be doing more or we could be giving more and more of ourselves. But I mean, I have yet to meet one mom that hasn't felt like depleted at some point. And I think that's just kind of how we are. But I think hearing these stories of incredible women like yourself and normalizing the guilt and knowing that Mm -hmm. it's okay to go through that, um, but don't let that stop you from what you need to do to take care of yourself so you could better yourself. Like running, I'm sure is something that makes you a better person, not just a physical element, yeah. but it mentally helps you to do better at work and to also be at home and like strategize how you could be more effective um, with your, your kids. So yeah, I just started doing that myself. I, especially in the beginning of quarantine, I completely gave up on working out and working out has always been like a big part of mm. me. Um, and I just, I just was not in a good place. Yeah, And so I started again about a month ago oh, and I'm like, why, why did I stop? Why did I stop? <laughs> right? And you just like, you just got to work your schedule around whatever it is to yeah. make you, you feel good about yourself. Yeah. You have to prioritize it. Yeah. Um, and I think also what's been interesting for me as my children get older, they understand I mean, they'll see me if if I'm huffing around the kitchen. My son might say, "Like, do you want to go for a run, Mama?" <laughs> <laughs> you know. So I I think our children would also prioritize those, see us trying our our hardest, and honestly, are proud of us. Um, and as they get older, they're able to express that in in different ways. But I think it's important to remember that even our young children who can't express it are looking to us as models and you know, they love us and would want the best for us. So we should certainly want that for ourselves. Okay. One last question. Um, If there is one advice you can tell all parents, what would that be? It could be super general or it could be super specific. If there's one advice for parents during this time. I think it actually might come back to what, what we've been talking about. (laughs) Um, To be kind to ourselves 
this is such a hard time. And really, you know, we're, we're all going through this kind of this shared trauma together. And if we've had any other traumatic experiences in our lives, it's bringing all of that to the surface for us. You know, even if we're not expressing it that way, that's just how human development works. So it's just a difficult time for folks across the board. The kinder that we can be to ourselves, the more forgiving, uh, the kind of taking it day by day. You know, sometimes we don't always have someone in our lives to tell us how great we are. So we have to be able to remind ourselves of that. You know, saying saying kind things to ourselves. But, you know, we all we all have have voices that talk to us. Absolutely. <laughs> um, you know, make those kind things that you're saying. Amazing. Um, we're gonna end with some rapid fire questions. These are really <laughs> short form, okay. fun questions. Okay. Um, okay. So you could just tell me what comes to mind first thing. Okay. Okay. One product you cannot live without. It doesn't have, it could be anything from beauty. It could be anything from parenting products. It could be anything. One product you cannot live without. My Nespresso machine. <gasps> That's a good one. <laughs> I would have said that one. <laughs> I was going to say my running shoes. So I'm like, I could run barefoot. I need coffee. <laughs> <laughs> okay. How would you describe yourself as a parent? Uh, reflective. I'm not always perfect, but I do always try to think about it and think about what's working and what's not. And yeah, I would say I love that. I haven't heard that before. I love that. How would your kids describe you as a parent? <laughs> <laughs> that is very funny because my, my son and I just had this conversation. So I'll, I'll tell you what he said. We were actually talking about friends of his, uh, their parents. And I said, well, how would you describe me? And he, he said, strict, but reasonable. It's <laughs> like, I'll take it. I'll take strict, That's but reasonable. Answer. <laughs> I yeah. I love yeah. that. Yeah. <laughs> Hardest thing about parenting. Uh, balance. The most rewarding thing about parenting. Uh, it's actually the most rewarding thing for me about teaching too. Uh, being with these kind of just cool people, you know, like your kids are cool. Um, and they, they, they grow up and become even cooler and they're people you can talk to and they're fun and interesting. And yeah, they become cooler than us eventually. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and that's, yes, right. Like that's our legacy. If we can do that, we win. <laughs> <laughs> what is one thing you hope for, for your kids? Uh, that they, they love like really big and that they feel big love in return. And last but not least, how do you want to be remembered as a parent? Maybe I'll, I'll go back to what we were just saying. I want to be remembered as somebody who raised kids who were way cooler than I could ever hope to be. Way better. <laughs> I love that. Well, thank you so much, Kylie. I feel so incredibly inspired to just become and better myself as a parent after chatting with you. Um, and I'm sure a lot I'm of our parents listening feel the same way. So thank you so much. And where can um, everybody find you if they're interested in, I don't know, learning more about teaching strategy for yourself? Is there any platforms that they could find you on? <laughs> yeah. So uh, professionally um, on LinkedIn, um, that's a good way to reach out to me and, and see the, the work that I'm up to now. Amazing. And I'm on Twitter, but all I tweet about is early childhood stuff. So <laughs> awesome. 
Thank you so much, Kylie. Thank Have you. Have a great rest of the day. Bye. Thanks so much. Take care. I hope you guys enjoyed today's episode. If you liked it, please take a second to rate, review, and subscribe. It really is the best way to support the show. Also, if you want to see more of us, head over to our Instagram and follow us there at Bumo Parent. And to learn more about Bumo Brain Virtual School, follow us at Bumo Brain or head over to bumobrain.com. Thank you guys so much for listening and I'll see you guys next week.